0: stress okay and that could be from many many different causes it could be from right. exposure it could be from um psychological stress uh you know poor emotional health it could be from electromagnetic fields it could be from a uh, vaccine injury it could be from poor diet it could be from um all kinds of things like mm. it, you know across the board and it could be the wrong light environment it could be you know imbalance in circadian rhythm like all these different things are basically s- sending signals to the cell that we are in a hostile, stressed environment. And then if a certain group of tissues um, you know, takes the brunt of that for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, maybe it's where the toxins you were exposed to or, or something like that, um, mm-hmm. then that tissue becomes diseased. And what it's doing is it's, it's detoxing. It's trying to break down damaged DNA. It's trying to clean up the cell. It's trying to do all these things. And that is resulting in loss of communication from mm-hmm. other cells around it. And so it doesn't function well as a whole. The cells start acting um, as, as an individual, mm-hmm. um, and we get this process of pushing things out of the cell, as detoxification. And that could be from exosomes and various things like that. But that that process is pretty much the overarching theme of all chronic disease or all you know pathology in the body in general. So the idea I, is still that we have excessive damage that
1: triggers. Uh cascade of reactions that ultimately ultimately results in um well I don't know if you if if you can say irreversible tissue damage because for mm-hmm. some to some degree you said like your type one diabetes persists. So there is still some form of damage that cannot be reversed hundred percent.
0: But or, yeah, or I haven't yeah. figured out how to to put my body in a state yet. Uh, or maybe I never will uh, to right. to reverse that process. You know, like I I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, but but the whole autoimmune theory and idea behind it um, is 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 wrong, I think, um, mm-hmm. in in my opinion. And it's this it's the it's the change in environment of my body that it was put in, you know, um, a very long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. And just our modern world is incompatible with life, in my opinion, um, in many ways. It doesn't mean that life won't survive, but yeah. uh, it means that life will be made harder because it's getting all the signals that it's in a hostile, dangerous, stressful environment. And so your body's responding that way. And sometimes specific tissues respond more mm-hmm. um, aggressively than others and we get diseased tissue, right? Right. And so so do you think there is still
1: an argument to be made for genetic uh, susceptibility because like obviously not everyone develops uh, these forms of hypersensitivities and autoimmune condition uh, autoimmune conditions uh, over the course of their lives so there's some individuals that are more it seems like there are more prone mm-hmm. given the same environment so like I can I, we, I can live in the same city with with a person who has Hashimoto's and I don't suffer from it and the other person well then we can obviously analyze the lifestyle and see maybe the person has some toxic uh, toxin exposure, which I um, do not have. And that mm-hmm. is the explanation. But um, do you think there's an argument
0: to be made for some form of genetic susceptibility? Potentially. Yeah. And I talk about this in my first book, which is called the health evolution. And um, it's not a fun thing to talk about for some people. But um, right. you know, there is You know, there is a certain genetic predisposition, or you can be genetically susceptible to certain things, but it's all dependent on what has happened in your life. Like, you know, were you, you know, were you you a natural birth? Were you breastfed? You know, did you have a traumatic childhood? Were you fully vaccinated? All these different things can play into what has manifested as your health or disease today, right? And so just because someone, you guys both live in a city, one has Hashimoto's, one doesn't um that person has a totally different you know experience life experience than you do um but you know in families we can kind of tend to see this they can be genetically predisposed to certain conditions but is it the genes that are driving that or is it the families tend to have the same oh behaviors? yeah you know so they tend to have the same behaviors and those genes are expressed that way but whether or not the genes are expressed is entirely dependent of that's right your your environment that you put it in however there is something to be said for this evolutionary component to it, because evolutionarily, if I had weak genes, I wouldn't make it right. Mm -hmm. And that's how evolution works. And that's how evolution creates strong genes. So if I'm looking at our modern environment and how lots of people have, you know, because of our epidemic of chronic disease, if lots of people have chronic disease, it means that their genes are not well suited to this modern environment with the Wi-Fi and the poor light and the, food knowledge different things right mm-hmm. however if we had let we've made life very easy for ourselves right mm-hmm. and so someone who does have that chronic disease and um um you know has those genes that are predisposed to this, this poor health in this poor environment because we've made life so easy it's not as harsh as the reality of nature
1: mm-hmm.
0: then then people with those poor genes myself included would be allowed to procreate and pass on those poor genes. Right. And that's not how evolution works. And so now we're creating more people with less apt genes to the modern environment. You know, so we're changing Mm -hmm. this modern environment so rapidly. And there's no way evolution can keep up with that change because it happens so fast. But also, but also we're, you know, we're creating an easy life that's allowing those poor genes to be passed on. Um, Mm. And like I said, some people don't like this kind of conversation, but it's just, this is the reality. This is what we're doing. And mm. we're, we're creating this this um, this pool of genes that is not well suited to our environment, and if we keep changing the environment, keep adding more intense Wi-Fi mm. signals, more now now we're at five G, you know, they keep doing this so rapidly, um, then then we're gonna see more and more uh, a larger and larger epidemic of poor health. Does that make sense?
1: I get, I guess it does.
0: the The idea that
1: um, that basically the I mean, it, it still boils down to the idea that um, environment environment does play the major role mm-hmm. in all that, and that uh, that w- our world and our society is set up so that, which is which is a good say- thing in itself, right? We 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 want everyone and as many people as possible to survive. I mean, that's the reason you right. and I are, do- or I'm going to be a doctor. You are a doctor, and so this is the reason we do what we do because we want to help people, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the way we live our lives, which have be, the lives our lives have become increasingly easier, as you said, in the sense that we don't face the same challenges we we faced throughout the course of evolution. Uh, the selection pressure is absent, if you will. Right. So um, that's actually a, a good segue to to talk about heart disease because I was thinking in evolutionary terms, and I was thinking. I was thinking, so like almost everyone develops heart disease, like in one form or another. We all like at some point in life, almost everyone has some degree of atherosclerosis going on in their vessels. And so you can slow it down, you can accelerate it, you can have a heart attack or or not, but it's, it's very ubiquitous. It's very universal for human beings, um, meaning that it doesn't just affect a very tiny, you know, percentage of the population. And even if it would, so even if it would, then even then you could make an evolutionary argument. And one example that always comes to mind is sickle cell anemia. So it's more prevalent in regions with high uh, incidence of malaria because it seems to be protective against malaria. So it's like, that's what they tell us at least. And so the idea is it's very rare. And in regions where it's more frequent, it serves an evolutionary purpose. And so if something is is even more frequent than I was I would think that there is an explanation for the mechanisms that the body is um that the body is using in you know during the disease process so the idea that just we have this evil molecule that's called ldl cholesterol that we all have that just kills us seems preposterous to me mm-hmm. because it 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 just falls apart if we think about it in evolutionary terms for 2 minutes and so um, that's that's one reason I be, I became skeptical with this entire paradigm, and so let's maybe let's maybe dive into that a little.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, the idea that one molecule or one you know aspect of our of our system, our complex biological ecosystem, mm-hmm. can drive a whole disease process is incredibly incredibly short sighted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we you know if you look at an ecosystem. Um, You know, there are many different factors, uh, which points to the fact that that modern medical research is incredibly flawed because it tries to eliminate all the variables. And the last time I checked, my body is never exposed to one variable at a time. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we can't expect to understand human physiology based on trying to eliminate all the variables. And that's exactly what the highest form of research is said to do is eliminate all the barriers, do, do a clinical trial and that kind of thing. So. Um, but yeah, this idea that this one molecule in the body can drive a whole disease process is um, incredibly flawed. It's very um, it's very handy for the, the the people that can affect that biomolecule um, <laughs> pharmaceutical company they That's have right. drugs that can affect that molecule. So that idea is very handy for them. So there's a lot of money pushed into that idea um, by them um, so that they can make a profit. That's just the nature of our of our capitalist society. Um, but but yeah so it doesn't make sense and so just to just to to kind of intro this and also Mm -hmm. kind of tie it back into the evolutionary um, aspect of it one example of how evolution has played a role in this is is if you look at the the statistics you know cardiometabolic diseases um, metabolic syndrome atherosclerosis uh, diabetes all these different things cardiometabolic syndromes uh, are diseases are more prevalent so when when people um of minority get these diseases whether it's specific in the united states when it's pacific islander um black americans um native americans um mm-hmm. they tend to get these diseases more um frequently and more severely when they get them than people mm. of european descent right why is that it's because people of european descent were, were living a more westernized in civilization lifestyle they're eating the more processed foods the the sugars and grains and things like that they were um you know living in cities um little less time in contact with nature and they were doing that they were doing that before these other populations of people were doing them and so they were doing them before we had western medicine that could keep a type 2 diabetic alive right and so right A certain percentage of the population that did not adapt well to that more westernized culture died off was not allowed to procreate right and so there that's why the genes we that uh, you know people of European descent have today. are more hardy against say those diseases, you can still get them for sure, obviously, you know Uh, you still create the wrong environment, however. Um, they're a little bit protected because the genes have gotten a little better at defending against those things, right? Because of that time period. But now, when you take the the Pacific Islander and the Black Americans and you put them, you know, more or less with with less generations between when they went from living in nature to a Western lifestyle, then they get these diseases more severely and more frequently, and that's mm-hmm. what we see in the statistics. Um, because there's been no, you know, evolutionary thing there. Um, so then we get to this point where at some point they decided that this one molecule, this LDL molecule, um, was driving this whole disease process and then ignored all those environmental factors and ignored all the that kind of, you know, evolutionary thinking about why this would happen. Um, And so, you know, this idea was put forth by, um, you know, scientists in the 50s who were just trying to explain heart disease, mainly atherosclerosis, and, you know, did some poor quality research and, came up with the idea that it was cholesterol and saturated fat that, that mm-hmm. does these things, even though once they heavily tested, because they did heavily test that theory after the theory came out you know, with lots of clinical studies, and they found that it wasn't the case at all. Um, mm. But the theory had taken off. Right? There was a lot of money behind it. You know, The, mm. the, the grain industry, the sugar industry, the um, pharmaceutical industry were all very interested in that theory because it made their products look better Uh, so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of money pushed behind that. A lot of, you know, you know, funded science went into that theory and Mm -hmm. then, you know, it kind of stuck, you know, it's just what happened. And that was kind of the conventional wisdom. And there was a lot of money being passed around to, to further that theory. And so when you actually look at, does LDL or Mm -hmm. any lipoprotein, um, or cholesterol, um, you know, is there any point at which it says, I'm going to go attack the lining of the artery and get right. deposited in there? The answer is absolutely no. There always has to be something else happen before that could ever happen. Mm, um, I and see. E- yeah. And even when that that damage to the artery happens, which has to happen first, there's no, there's no point where the LDL says, oh, look at that healthy artery. I'm going in there, right? Um, the damage has to happen first. And even when that happens, the LDL just happens to get caught up in it there's no, hmm. it's still like, it's not like this, this evil thing that, you know, goes and becomes atherogenic just because there's damage. It's just, and so there's all this focus on the LDL theory and the cholesterol theory. And to me, and even then people, some people accept that LDL and cholesterol don't cause heart disease. So yeah, yeah, it doesn't, but if it becomes damaged, it becomes oxidized or becomes right. more dense or whatever, then it does. And it's like, well, no, that's not right either. It's not like that's, that's uh that's, you know, trying to solve our problem of of cholesterol or atherosclerosis um, with the same level of thinking that got us to that problem, right? Um, of trying to blame cholesterol for for heart disease, um, and so we have to think at a different level. We have to think of other, you know, other science, other evidence um, to right. explain theory. We can't just try to keep explaining it by looking at a lipid panel or over over-analy- in right. over analyzing a lipid panel. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, because even those small dense LDLs and those oxidized LDLs, yes, they may be problematic, but they're only evidence that there's a bigger problem, which that's is inflammation right. and oxidative stress that's damaging yeah. the lining of the artery. So if you see the two things happening at the same time, it's not like, it's not like the body creates this oxidized LDL and that's what's creating the problem. Right. There right. There's a problem first. And we have So to yeah, that's, it.
1: that's always what I'm thinking when, so several things. Um, Before we go into greater detail, um, I was going to play devil's advocate for for a minute and just lay out what we are being taught in med school and like the pillars of evidence that they teach us that clearly prove whatever that LDL is causally related to atherosclerosis. And so um, the first idea is we have granted weak, but we have this um, allegedly epidemiological evidence that shows that there is an association, just an association. And so everyone admits that it's an association, but for some reason, they like pointing it out, pointing it out in the context of LDL and heart disease. But wherever we, you know, there are associations that they don't like, they like to dismiss it. So it's more like it's it's, it's a type of cherry picking as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. But that's what I like stating first. So we have we have this epidemiological evidence Um, showing that there is a weak whatever association between LDL and heart disease. Then we have, um, very important, we have this pathology of familial hypocholesterolemia where we can clearly see people having no other risk factors aside from sky-high cholesterol and LDL that develop premature severe atherosclerosis. Then we um, we have randomized controlled trials of pharmaceutical agents that lower cholesterol and they arguably lower the incidence of heart disease and death and improve mortality. Then we have these weird nutritional trials where we like substitute um, saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat and and some of them and we obviously only like to focus on those. Some of them show that there's a benefit to PUFAs uh, compared to saturated fats and they We know that if we substitute them for whatever reason, maybe it's the inclusion of pufas or the exclusion of saturated fat uh, that lowers LDL cholesterol. And then also we have, and that's what Peter Atiyah is the biggest fan of, Mendelial Mendelial randomization studies, where we look at individuals that are genetically just born with lower versus higher LDL, and there seems to be a difference in mortality. So um, this is... All lines of evidence that are commonly presented and i think almost all of them i'm not quite sure what to do with the mendelian randomization maybe you could comment on that but almost all of them um have either have the issue of reverse causality isn't being examined or other like factors that can play into that aren't being controlled for like with statin so if we imagine like in a uh, even if we do admit that they have some benefit we don't know if they have other pleiotropic effects. Actually, we do know that they do have other effects mm-hmm. that could be the explanation for the reduced um, incidence of heart disease. So these sorts of things aren't controlled for because we just like the hypothesis: LDL is causal for atherosclerosis. But um, so these are the arguments. What is what is your what are your thoughts on on those? Yeah.
0: So it, uh, just to kind of begin with, it's it's again that idea. Like yeah. you said, we're we're so hooked. On right. this this idea, this this lipid panel is going to tell us, or it's not going to tell us, based on how we analyze it, whether or not someone's predisposed or not predisposed, whether whether the the Mendelian randomization studies where you know um, certain subsets have lower versus higher just genetically, and that you know predisposes them, but that that's just completely flawed way of thinking. Um, and there's no way, no matter how you analyze it, maybe, no matter how you slice it, there's no way that these studies Are going to ever tell you if you're predisposed to any certain disease and and that's because again we're in a complex biological ecosystem that's what our bodies are and there's no way you can overanalyze one biomarker and tell us because there's a million different things that are going to happen to you throughout your life And, Mm. and just trying to focus in on one like i said we're hooked on that theory because there's been a lot of money put behind it and so everyone You know, going through medical school or just you just the conventional wisdom is just told that, and so when you're told that, that's the level of thinking that you have. You've got Mm. okay, analyzing this is how I'm going to figure out if I'm predisposed or not, Um, and it's just all it's it's a hyperreality. Okay, so people who aren't familiar with the hyperreality, it's something that humans have made up that becomes more real than what's actually real. Mm. okay and that's exactly what medical research has become doesn't mean we can't learn from it doesn't mean that Mm. we can't look at it and use it to guide us and and be part of a a strategy but it is a very big hyper reality and so one example i give is is the weather channel right so if you look at the weather channel and you see the green blobs going across the screen and you say Mm -hmm. oh it's raining outside and then you go outside and it's not raining um it's like where's the reality the reality is outside, not the weather right. channel, right? And I, yeah, I had yeah, this yeah. experience. I was driving somewhere and it was pouring rain and I had four more hours to drive. And I was like, I wonder how long it's going to be raining. So I kind of look at my phone. I'm looking at the weather and it says it's not raining. And I'm like, but it's raining outside right now. So it's like, what's more real, right? And so that's an example of a hyperreality is the weather channel. Yeah. Um, and so medical research has become that hyperreality where we are, we are using these man-made or, or man-designed studies, um, man-analyzed statistics, uh, things like mm. that to try and tell us if we're going to get a disease or not. And it's this, it's this hyperreality that is being used to perpetuate a theory mm. and an idea that is very profitable. And we have to recognize it. Right. It doesn't mean that I'm totally dismissing all the research and everything, or that I don't mm. like to talk about research or that I don't read research because I do. But we have to think about it in that context. Um, I, yeah. because if we don't if we don't then we're just getting over and, and i see people like like peter atia and like lane norton uh, and all these guys like that who are just so hyper focused on the research says this and it's just like you've got no health philosophy mm. you're you're basically just a slave to the research mm. and that research is incredibly flawed just because of the nature of research not mm. because that it was a poorly designed study or it was lower on the totem pole like we have to come to that reality um and so you know, I there's a there's a there's a quote mm. from a book. It's it's the second Jurassic Park book, and people may laugh oh, it's Jurassic Park or whatever, but it's it's the Lost World. And Michael Crichton is a really brilliant man, and he was actually he was actually he went to medical school before he became an. Author. Oh wow. Um, oh. And yeah, and so he's re- he some of his non-fiction books talk about his experiences in medical school and stuff, and he's he's a really a really critical thinker. Um, but he, um, in the the very last paragraph of the lost world, you know, Dr. Malcolm is like theorizing about something and the kids are like, oh my gosh, really? And then this other, this other character, is just like, you really believe that, you know, we like to theorize about things. And, and one day someone's going to come along and totally disprove that theory because of something else. And humans just like to talk and theorize and all this kind of stuff. And he's mm-hmm. like, but really you need to focus on what's real. Right. right? And what's real is is it's not this these numbers and these words and this and how you can influence what you say in a research article or, or any writing like even my book you know like, yeah don't let that influence you what's real is what's what you feel on a day-to-day basis what's right. real like what gives you health real sunlight real food real emotions like those types of things you know like let's focus on what's real and stop over analyzing the hyper realities trying to figure out an answer and you know what, one quick comment on that because we do have to be a little bit careful with
1: saying you only listen to how you feel in the day-to-day moment cuz mm-hmm. what we 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 perfectly know that what might feel good in the short term could turn out
0: to be detrimental in the long term yeah and so there are yep but if, you, are, yeah. but if you started to feel bad that would be your body's feedback immediately to right. stop doing that thing it's very sure. unlikely that 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 doing that thing short term that makes you feel good and then doing it too much is going to kill you too fast before you figure out, oh, maybe I should stop, right? Right. Um, so that, I, I
1: I hear what you're saying. Um, right. But like I exercise think, would be one example, right? You might mm-hmm. feel, even on that same day, you do a vigorous form of exercise, you have like muscle soreness for a week, you would be like, no, nope, doesn't feel good. <laughs> and it's not good for me. I'm not doing yeah. that for the rest of my life. It's
0: going to kill me soon, yeah. you know? However, so, evolutionarily, you would have never gotten to that point where exercise would have felt that bad because you would have been doing it your whole life. That's true. You, you never, you never would have come off the couch, been 30 yeah. pounds overweight, and had that moment where you did some exercise and your body felt terrible. You right, know, right. It just wouldn't have been a reality. And so you maybe when you come off the couch, 30 pounds of weight, you should, you should ease into it, you know, but um and and not, you know, exert yourself and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but evolutionarily that never would have been the case. Mm-hmm. Fair
1: enough. Fair enough. Um, so, but maybe um, you said we should we shouldn't like completely disregard all the research. So maybe we we could walk through the things I've mentioned, and you could give a, a mm-hmm. quick comment what what your thoughts are as far as the epidemiology. So the points were epidemiology, um, FH, mm-hmm. um, RCTs with statins and other medications. Then these. Trials where they substitute saturated um, PUFAs for saturated fats, mm-hmm. and then the Mendelia randomizations. Because I'm interested in all of them, especially mm-hmm. in I'm not like I'm still not completely sure what to make with the Mendelian randomization. I, I I see your point that it's um that it's fundamentally inaccurate because we it's it's hard to isolate these variables. Mm-hmm. But um I mean I I haven't looked into the research itself. I only have heard of it from like other podcasts. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm still a little bit a little bit confused as far as Mendelian randomization is concerned because at first glance it it it, it sounds compelling, right? You you you, right. you you're like you look at individuals and you see that these are the differences in LDL and those with low LDL die less of a of heart disease and those with higher die more of uh, heart disease. So at first glance, it seems to make sense. So let's
0: just maybe walk through all of these. Um, yeah, so studies. epidemiology first, um, you know, it's, it's association or not causation. You know, right. so there's there's no way you can ever prove causation. These studies are supposed to be designed to identify associations and then design clinical trials to test them. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't happen a lot of times, especially in nutrition, because it's very right. expensive to do that. Um, and so lots of, you know, researchers just don't do that. They don't have the funding. Yeah. It. Um, and so they take the associations and, but there's a lot of different issues with associational research. One is that it can't cancer causation two is that, um, it's relying on people to accurately report what they ate, you know, because it's, it's relying on surveys. So it's relying on people to tell you what they ate, how much, yeah. how much saturated fat they ate for the last year. I can't even tell you that, you know, and I am, I'm, I'm into this stuff, you know, so that's a big flaw. And there's research showing that that type of research is inaccurate and not reliable, right? Yeah. Um, there's there's how they report it. You know, they, they lots of times they mess with statistics and they say that they report it as um, uh, relative risk instead of absolute risk, mm. which is which is a problem because if I say that I had a, you know, if I ate red meat, or let's say my baseline risk of something was one, and I ate red meat and that raised my risk to one point five, you know, you could say who cares? You know that's 0.5. That's not statistically significant. That doesn't matter. However, you could report it as 50% increased risk. That's right, because that's what it is, and and that's relative risk, which is totally unethical, in my opinion. So maybe to make it easier
1: for people to understand, if you had if you had an incidence of for heart disease, let's say of one in a thousand, in in the first group, and an incidence of two in a thousand in your second group, you could say that was an increase of a hundred percent. From mm-hmm. one to two is double. It's a 100% increase. Or you could say, let me see, it's zero. What would it be? Is it 0.1%? Something like that. It's right. a very tiny absolute increase compared to the relative increase. And right. so if you deal with with large total numbers, if you have like hundreds of thousands of participants and relatively small incidences, then small
0: increases will seem like large relative differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's how they mess with statistics and get these big headline studies, you know, Um, so yeah, epidemiology should just never be used to draw concrete conclusions, just ever, Mm. Um, and people need to know that If, if if a headline somewhere says such and such is associated with this, that's epidemiology, sure say, okay, that's interesting, but never draw concrete conclusions from that type of research.
1: And also you never really know the the factor of reverse causation, right? This is what I was always thinking, especially with respect to LDL. I'm like, um, well, so we know there are like all these hundreds of other risk factors for heart disease. Mm -hmm. And then we look at LDL and heart disease and conclude that this has to be causal. How about something else like diabetes, for instance, causes hyperlipidemia? We know that. And so if mm-hmm. you're obese, that causes hyperlipidemia, right? right. Which came so, first, right? Which which one came first? So if we say, oh, if we say it's unambiguous that obesity and diabetes causes hyperlipidemia, and then hyperlipidemia is associated with heart disease, how about we just say diabetes is associated with heart disease?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's another thing to keep in mind, yeah. Right.
0: Now, as far as, I think, FH was the next one. Uh, yeah. Familiar hypercholesterolemia. So if... But looking at those studies, you know, there there are lots of them that show or there's some of them that show that, um, that yeah, the people with higher cholesterol have higher um, rates of heart disease um, or atherosclerosis. Um, there's also an argument that atherosclerosis is like you kind of alluded to in the beginning and it's kind of a normal wear and tear process. Like it's going to happen mm. to some level no matter what you do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because I think that there's just wear and tear, just like there's wear and tear on a car, and we can do things right. to, you know, to slow down that wear and tear, but it's going to happen no matter what, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how well we take care of that car, at some point, it's going to break down. And so, um, same kind of thing there. Now, lots of this, or a few of the studies that talk about in my book, they talk about FH, and they say that um, the, they point out that the discrepancy between the two likely has to do with lifestyle factors, And this is the same kind of argument i'll make for the Mendelian randomization studies Mm. is that is that you know if you have more of something around that when it becomes damaged will also contribute to the damage Mm -hmm. then that can make things more likely to happen right so like so just to kind of lay that out because that may not have made sense so i have let's say i have more ldl cholesterol around Right. Yep. And genetically, you know, either I'm FH or just, you know, uh, in the Medellin studies, I just, you know, maybe I don't have FH, but I have genetically more than right. other people. Right. So when those things get damaged because of all the other environmental factors that are happening to me, um, no matter what it was throughout my life, if I have more of those things around that can become damaged and then once they become damaged, they become a problem themselves. You know, they can contribute to the inflammation and oxidative stress, which is very well established that oxidized LDL right. and small dense particles are problematic, um, just right. like all the other things that cause oxidative stress. If there's more of those things around, then if I'm putting my body in an environment where it becomes more damaged, you know, inflammation, more hostile, like I was talking about earlier, um, then there's more likely that I'll get, you know, the, the, the end stage disease process uh, from those things because there's just more of those things around. Um, Right. So, like, sometimes I I think about that in the context of type 1 diabetes because, you know, there's this subset of people that are, you know, these lean mass hyper responders that they talk about, where there's elevated, when you go on a low carb diet or whatever, you get elevated um, uh, uh, cholesterol numbers, or you can, not not everybody Mm -hmm. does, Um, but uh, they're called lean mass hyper responders. And in the context of a healthy person that doesn't have type 1 diabetes and not fluctuating butchers, maybe that's fine. Right. right. But maybe it's not as good for someone with type one like me, um, right? because I'm never going to be able to control my blood sugars like like the average person. Um, there's mm-hmm. always going to be these ups and downs. I'm trying to be a pancreas the best I can. I'm doing a pretty good job, but um, I'm never going to be that that um, the, the mechanisms that it would be that control that. So if there's more of these particles around that, when they become damaged, cause issues, mm-hmm. maybe that's not a good such a good thing. So it's all really dependent on the person. So right. if we give if we give the devil its due, we could mm. say
1: the standard lipid hypothesis is true to this small degree that like it is right in saying more particles when put in the wrong environment do contribute to the to the issue, but yeah. they are not the first causal step. And yes. so I believe I believe it's it's also it's, it's wrong to say well, it is the most important factor, how it's often implied, because mm. um, we, we can clearly uh, say, and that's why I hate when Peter Atiyah makes the comparison to smoking, because I'm like, right. look, with smoking, you have hazard ratios of 30, <laughs> not 1.3. So it's it's definitely not the same thing. You can't just say, oh, look, oh, we have this evidence for smoking, and we clearly know that smoking causes lung cancer, and the same causality uh, holds true for LDL and atherosclerosis, but the the magnitude is so much it's it's so different. If we compare these two things, I think there is just no comparison. But um, like uh, in 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 contrast to people who completely disregard the role of ApoB, you could at least maybe or we could at least admit that in the wrong in the wrong environment, it it can
0: potentially contribute to the problem definitely yeah and i I like the way you just said that and and kind of summarized it because the environment is the context that matters that's right right so so maybe i could argue that maybe given the fact that most people don't understand what a good environment for a human is these days and they're in all the the emfs around them and they're in the wrong light environment and they're eating they're so confused about food they're eating the wrong food and whatever else, you know, they're under high amounts of psychological stress, then maybe that environment, it's not good to have elevated LDL, because Mm. again, that can, it's like, it's more, it's like, it's it's providing more ammunition for the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, you can make that argument, you know, but there's also the evidence that people, you know, with, with higher cholesterol live longer, have less, you know, less uh, cognitive decline, less heart disease. Oh, less yeah. cancer. I mean, there's that type of evidence there too. So it's like, what do we believe? And we have to just kind of take it in the context of an environment. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think maybe that doesn't give people some direction, but it's, it's kind of half. That's the thing. That's the thing. That's why I
1: believe it's, it, it's
0: important to make this caveat
1: because if we, if, if we point this out too much, and if we, if we, if we point out like, like how it's done in Western medicine, this is the thing to focus on, then this is the thing people will focus on. We mm-hmm. saw that the past three years, what they tell us to focus on, we focus on, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's, like it, they're, they, 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 it's powerful, you know, the, the mm-hmm. messaging. And if the messaging is focus on LDL, because even if it presents a small risk in the, in the right, in the wrong environment, when put in the wrong env- environment, and we tell everyone to focus on that, well, then everyone is going to focus on that and forget about the other things that we believe are more important. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, I, think, and I, think, whole, I think that's the whole, a crucial
0: point. Yeah. The whole like um, the system of Western medicine is so focused on yeah. this. You know, this is how you do it. This is the recipe. Do it this way. Don't think mm. any other way. You know, um, that's how it's kind of programmed into medical students. Um, but yeah. yeah. So, but the other thing is, is that there's other science out there and it's more like on the biophysics or quantum side of things that I think make lipids much less relevant um or, right. or any and so i talk about that a lot i'm giving a talk on on this in, in a conference in baltimore in july um about like kind of this you know fourth phase water and its role in right in lipids and things like that um but we didn't talk about the statin trials yeah yeah, i was briefly. just gonna say
1: before before yeah. we uh, dive into the um, let's say the um, like before we discuss the pathophysiology and all the all the things you research, because mm. I haven't heard that from Malcolm Kendrick. I find his work like amazingly sophisticated and I learned a bunch from him, but this whole water and quantum mm-hmm. thingy, I only heard from you so far. So um, let's, let's talk about um, the nutritional interventions first and
0: statins. That was yeah. the two things that are left. Right. So the nutritional interventions. I mean, if you look at the, like when the theory in the fifties came out from Mansell Keys. um, Then there was like four or five different studies across the world, one in Norway, one in Finland, one in Australia, uh, two in the United States that tested this theory. They replaced uh, saturated fat with unsaturated fat in their diets. And all those studies found that the more unsaturated Mm -hmm. fat they ate in the form of margarine and vegetables and things like that, um, the more heart disease they had, the more incidence of heart disease they had. Um, but the theory had already taken off. So that th- that, that research was kind of buried a little bit and mm-hmm. it, was brought to, it was brought to light a little bit more with Christopher Ramsen when he went in mm-hmm. and he, he kind of dug up the research and, and republished uh, with all the data and things like that. And so, um, so, yeah, and then even recently in 2020, a study came out this that um, looked at all the evidence for saturated fat consumption and said that the idea that saturated fat causes heart disease was way overblown. Um, mm. And so, you know, it's coming around again that it doesn't make sense and to me like when i step back and look at all these studies they're trying to you know you know uh pinpoint one thing or the other and find a study that says it definitely here and in reality that's just we're chasing our tails and to me it's it's it doesn't make sense you know that one nutrient is driving mm. a whole disease process when there's saturated fat in a blueberry you know uh there's not a lot but there's a little bit there you know so it's not like it's this evil thing that it's just that it's 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 uh, it's part of our food supply and and to me the argument that I like to make with with PUFA versus with the, versus um, saturated fat is that there are studies that show that you know the more uh, unsaturated fat the more polyunsaturated fat you have or plant fat not even less because we like to talk about saturated versus unsaturated and yeah. versus, but I like to talk about or an omega-3 versus omega-6 and all these different things, I like to talk about plant fat versus animal fat. Right, because you never really consume these fatty acids in isolation. Right. It's, right? It, yeah, and and well, plant fats are what plants use. That's why they're plant fat. They're phytosterol. Sure. Right. Whereas cholesterol is what animals use. That's cholesterol. And so we can use phytosterol, plant fat, um, in place of cholesterol in some places. But there's studies that show that the more that we do that, then the more problems we have. There's studies that show right. that, that phytosterol gets deposited around the valves of the heart pretty heavily. Um, mm. There's studies that show that it creates rigidity in red blood cells because when a red blood cell is made up of phytosterol rather than cholesterol, mm. then it loses its flexibility. And so when it gets down to the capillaries and tries to squeeze through and everything, then mm. that can create hemorrhages, you know? Is um, phytosterol
1: usually absorbed by human beings? Because I've heard the idea that you like usually... Unless you have some sort of uh, genetic, I don't know, predisposition or whatever, um, there's not much of the phytosterol absorbed at all. Kind of same as with cholesterol, like the the cholesterol you eat, most of it you don't absorb because it's an ester. And then some people are like hyperabsorbers or something; they just mm-hmm. absorb more. Maybe yeah. that's, by the way, an explain one explanation for um, hyperresponders. They go low carb, they eat a ton of eggs, and some of right. them are
0: hyperabsorbers and they, they just absorbers. absorb all of the cholesterol Yes, yeah, exactly yeah that could be and uh it makes a lot of sense um yeah so there are mechanisms in your body that even if you absorb this phytosterol that you yeah. try and dump it back in right to the, into the the bowel so that it gets excreted um however if your body's starving for fats and the liver's stressed and it's not making good fats and things like that then it, it your body will use them it's kind of like it, it's kind of this intelligence that it has um and so if we're but also like cholesterol and phytosterol will absorb or will compete for absorption. Um, so if we're eating more oh, cholesterol, you know, it'll your body will absorb more of that. Um, mm. if you're eating more phytosterol, it'll absorb more of that. It, it kind of competes, you know. And so But, um, but, but what you're are, saying is if if the body absorbs phytosterol, it has
1: damaging effects
0: on the body. Yeah, your your body given no choice has to use it for for things that it right. would use cholesterol for and that can cause problems because that's not it doesn't enhance normal physiology right yeah um, and so you can look at all these studies that just replace one one with the other and see if it causes more disease but so the understanding of the fact that that polyunsaturated fats um, are are higher in in plant fats um, but also just the fact that a plant fat is not We're animals, you know, like we use cholesterol. That's what we use. And we may have some small Mm. roles for phytosterol, but we predominantly use animal fat because we are animals. Um, And so, and when you look at the physiology, that makes the most sense as far as, like I said, red blood cells just, you know, it can't even use them and they end up getting deposited in areas where there's, where there's turbulent flow. Um, Mm. That's like blood, like a valve, you know? Um, So, so yeah. Um, And then uh, the statin ones. So Mm -hmm. I mean the statin trials are literally if you wanted to teach someone about uh how to mess with statistics you would study these statin trials because that's exactly what they do right so and i talk about multiple ones in my book there was this one i can't remember it it when scotland there was the text caps trial um all these different things that claimed that lowering cholesterol with statin drugs had a benefit but if you look at the actual benefit it was like and I may not have the statistics exactly right because I researched it a long time ago, but it was like, yeah. you know, um, a certain amount of people would have to take a statin for five years to prevent one death. You know, and it was That's just like right. these incredibly, incredibly weak um, uh, benefits, but they were benefits, I guess, if you if you analyze them that way. And so the study overall concluded, oh, it was a benefit. Uh, one so, was like, so
1: what what people like saying, and I believe there is an argument to be made for that that mm-hmm. basically because heart disease takes such a long time to develop yeah. you can't uh, uh, like you can't expect to see dramatic differences in effects in like 5 years because that's nothing as far as heart disease is concerned mm-hmm. you know but even if like let's even admit that the benefits are legit i think what also has to be pointed out is the um is the um ho- how do you call it uh, pleiotropic Exactly, the pleiotropic yeah. effects of statins. So, yeah. what I learned from Malcolm Kendrick is that apparently um, statins are powerful um, activators of um, nitric oxide, which is anti-coagulative, anti-coagul- mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. and like va- vaso and uh, promotes vasodilation. So, mm-hmm. all things that uh, contribute to heart disease, it potentially reduces. What could be like, it's it's a very powerful explanation as far as I'm concerned, could, as far as I can tell, explain all yeah. the benefits of statins if there are any. So even mm-hmm. if we say there are benefits to statins, I think there are good ways to explain it other than LDL reduction. Because we, we, we had compounds that reduce LDL and do not reduce the incidence of heart disease. And now we have statins and every, everyone thinks, oh, it's still the LDL reduction, even though we had other compounds that didn't work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... Yeah. I mean, there are, there's evidence that that's the case. That's exactly the case. Um, yeah. However, I would much rather get those benefits in a I way agree, that, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't have all the side effects statins. And the, the biggest the biggest issue with side effects is, in my opinion, I mean, there's lots of different ones, but the biggest one is that it, it interferes with CoQ10 right. um, production. And so that uncouples your mitochondria, which is a huge mm-hmm. issue, right? Cause it, so that's what's driving the muscle pain and uh, the cognitive issues and all these different things. It's not just that you're not making cholesterol and your body can't use cholesterol for those things like it needs to. It's also because the mitochondria in those tissues are being damaged. And that is a huge problem because that is, that is pretty much life. Your mitochondria functioning optimally is, is pretty much life. So you have all these complexes one through one through five, Mm -hmm. four really. And then the fifth ones over here, but, um, that pass electrons down and electron transport so that you can make energy. Right, Mm. and structured water at the end of that. People think, oh yeah, make water as a byproduct. Like, no, that is perfect. That is perfect, energized, deteriorated depleted water. That is the most important water to make. And you need functioning mitochondria to do that. And there's, you know, um, there's a there's a Q couple, a CoQ10. And if it's not there, then those electrons, I picture them like playing Super Mario, and I didn't make the jump. You know, they kind of jump into the different complexes. If they didn't make it, they fall between, right? And that's kind of what happens. And that's lost energy um right that's that's lost energy that's expansion that's all kinds of issues uh that's swelling that's weight gain you know if your body mm. can't use those electrons that energy to make atp it ends up getting stored because it's being lost it's it's jumping mm. and it's going down right so um that's the biggest issue with statins and because mm. you know you may get this small benefit um and but you can also deplete your cholesterol and get some harm you know there's 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 a uh, cardiologist out there that wants your cholesterol lower than 70, which has been shown to be well, very lower than 50. problematic. Yeah, well, very 50 problematic. Actually.
1: Guidelines say if you're at very high risk and everything, mm-hmm. you should get below 50. Yeah,
0: you know? and in reality, it's like they're, instead of, instead of taking the gun away, they're trying to decrease the ammunition like we were talking about earlier. Mm. Right? Instead of taking the gun away, the gun is all the inflammatory things that are happening. They're trying to just take the less ammunition right mm-hmm. make less ammunition by lowering the ldl so much um when in reality we should just take the gun away leave the ammo there because the ammo yeah. has a benefit for something else you know um and mm. so, so yeah um it's it's there's not there's a lot of, like every time i hear an argument one way or the other i feel like somebody's missing a piece of the puzzle they're missing some right information um,
1: that's right
0: which is you know which is it harms their conclusions right so hmm. so yeah that's kind of you know my take on the statin trials is statistically and, and that's the other thing that i re- I read a lot of is that th- this idea that cholesterol or ldl is is so causative in heart disease is so uh inf- is infiltrated to everything that you know there'll be some there'll be some clinical trial on something that has nothing they're not looking for anything um to do with heart disease or ldl it's some herb or something i don't know anything and they say well well as a, as a side effect, we did notice that the LDL, so this, this intervention is good for heart disease. And it's just like, you know, it's just like, it's so pervasive. So this is, this
1: is, this is kind of seen as primary outcome already. They don't even have Mm -hmm. to assess, does it actually uh, result in increased heart disease incidence? No, we, we take LDL as a proxy. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's a proxy for heart disease. Higher LDL means you'll get more heart disease. So if, if any sort of Random intervention, even if it doesn't even test for heart disease, increase or lowers LDL, we can automatically draw conclusions as far as heart disease is concerned.
0: Yeah. All right, and that just gets us down a very dangerous path, you know. Oh yeah. Of, of, just, of just all this, you, you get to this conclusion at the very end after three or four different studies of something, and you're just like, what? Or you're reading all the cited literature in the in the research you're reading, and you're just like, how did they get to this conclusion? Right. You know, and then and that again, that creates that hyper reality. Mm. Um. That we talk about. So. That's right. That's so, yeah.
1: right. Mm-hmm. Um, one question: Are you are you familiar with this um, with this study? I think I saw it on the YouTube channel from Nick Norwitz, but I couldn't find it uh, when I when I looked for it. Mm-hmm. It was a study I think where they where they um, examined women, and it was, it was, I think it was an observational trial, and I was I was stunned by the hazard ratios because mm-hmm. it was like insulin resistance and diabetes had hazard ratios of like, don't quote me on that, but one of it was six or seven, the other one was 13, some insane, Mm -hmm. like relatively Mm -hmm. insane hazard ratios. And then LDL had an association of Mm 1.4. And um, obviously that's for for the pro LDL advocates, that's another piece of evidence that it's so bad for you. But for me, it's like, it's nothing. And then you look at insulin resistance and it's 13. So
0: you can clearly see the difference there. It's like, why, why are you focused on the 1.3 when you've got a 13 over here? Absolutely. It's yeah. like, why? And and I don't know if it was that study in particular, but, um, um, uh, Philip Avedia, I remember hearing him talk and he was, he showed a study similar to that. It was just like, mm-hmm. why are we focused on this 1.3 mm-hmm. or whatever number it is when we've got these other ones way over here that are just huge. Mm-hmm. And it was the, it was the diabetes. It was the insulin resistance.
1: And I would say even.
0: It, what they didn't test for was leptin resistance because that's even pre- preceding insulin resistance, right?
1: So, right, um, Yeah.
0: so yeah, um, yeah, that's so just for the last, I for the last
1: um couple minutes we have, it's I mean, it's, it's around 50 minutes that we still have, I believe. What time is it actually? Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's like okay, so 20 more that more like 20 minutes. Um, let's let's dive into your work more specifically mm-hmm. and um. So certain things we don't really have to touch that much because everyone knows insulin resistance is bad and diabetes results in blood sugar. That So maybe as a recap, insulin resistance results in basically everything that describes chronic disease. And I still find it interesting that we classify them as like separate diseases mm-hmm. without just calling everything insulin resistance. Because, you know, when you see a patient with heart failure, edema, um, d- diabetes, obesity, and like five other conditions, We give them all a separate name, but -hmm. it's like it's all insulin resistance, hypertension, Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism, everything. Mm -hmm. And so this um, damages blood vessels, hyperglycemia damages blood vessels, and this is causative in atherosclerosis. We know that. And so um, you have uh, pointed out a a few interesting um, things in that whole process that I haven't heard other people speak about that much. And so um, one of them is EMF. The other one, the other one is this structured water, and then s- some people do talk about sunlight. But s- let's still touch on that
0: if we if we if we can make it. For sure, um, yeah. So just a little background on on water. And so this goes like yeah. our 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 entire understanding, not entire, but our most of our understanding, at least in the medical world of of physiology and biology, is biochemistry. Uh, yeah, and we and that that's thanks to you know studies on nutrition and pharmaceuticals and and we know a lot about biochemistry so to speak however it's it's come to my understanding that the the physics of our body drives the biochemistry without the correct physics environment um biophysics then the biology doesn't know what to do when to do it okay obviously now yeah right so one of the most important aspects of the physics of our body is water we are always told, oh, we're 75, 80%, whatever, whatever number you think of. We're a large percentage of water, right? Um, however, I don't slosh around like a waterbed, right? I'm mm-hmm. not liquid water, okay? If I, if I take the tissue of my forearm like this, it's a gel, right? It that's looks right. like yellow. I can push it, and it gives, and then it comes right back, okay? And so that's because most of the water in my body is in a gel state okay mm. it's in this fourth phase of water which is it's been called this fourth phase of water or structured water or exclusion zone water or liquid crystalline it's got a lot of different names to it mm. um and so maintaining that fourth phase water is very important now there are still places in the body where it's li- there's liquid water right there's liquid water in the cerebral spinal fluid the lymphatic fluid well, is blood for that in, matter and blood yeah and blood is is more or less half water um and so the funny thing is, is that the way that water is able to become fourth phase water and kind of structure itself into this gel like state is when it has sufficient energy and water has the ability to hold energy. And this is all from researchers like Albertson Georgie and Gilbert Lang and Gerald Pollock. Um, all these guys have been looking into this for a long time. Uh, Maywan okay. Ho, James Clegg, lots of different researchers um, have, have looked into water and when it gets next, when it holds energy and it gets next to a hydrophilic surface, a water loving surface, which pretty much any biological surface is water loving, Mm -hmm. um, then it will structure itself. It kind of changes the uh, chemical makeup of the water, uh, cleaves off a hydrogen, and it uses other oxygens and hydrogens that are left over to make this um, uh, different structure of water that's more like a gel. Um, And so when we look at where this happens in the body, one place that it happens is vascular endothelia, mm. okay? And so if we have sufficient energy to our system and we have a healthy lining of the artery, then fourth phase water will form on top of that glycocalyx, okay? And, and I see. The, the most important part of this is that is that when water structure itself, the reason that one of its nicknames is exclusion zone water is that when it structures itself, almost nothing can penetrate it. Everything mm. is excluded, exclusion zone, right? And so, the only things that can penetrate it are small hydrated ions of minerals. Um, so, so um, you know, potassium or uh, or uh, nitrate or different those small ionic minerals. And if you look at the size of those, they're incredibly yep. incredibly small. And that means that anything bigger than that, which means the protein albumin, which is the smallest protein present in blood, is way too big to get through that cholesterol is astronomically too big to get through that. LDL. And like an LDL
1: is a an LDL. sphere. Yeah, even the, yeah. even the
0: HDL which are the smallest like proteins are but way too big. It's still a sphere. Big.
1: I mean it carries it carries I don't know how many particles yeah. of of yeah. Off
0: cholesterol in an yeah. HDL. Red blood blood cells bacteria astronomically big. Like they can never penetrate this water if it's intact and healthy. Right? And you so, know what just comes to mind is
1: um yeah. what 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 Peter Tia and people like him like saying is well um, it just uh, enters the and the the artery artery wall by like by diffusion. It's just right. and transcytosis, whatever. But let's say you take a petri dish and do all these fancy stuff, and it's true. Maybe it's true. I don't know what endothelial cells do in a petri dish, but mm-hmm. obviously we can never observe what they do in an artery lining in a healthy human being. You know, given the formation of this. Uh, lining of, of water, like we can't replicate that in a Petri dish. Right. So like all the, assu- we 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 make the assumption that an endothelial cell behaves like an endothelial cell in a Petri dish, just the same way as it does in a human body, while blood is streaming and you have the formation of this, of this water and the glycocalyx and everything else right. that prevents stuff from just getting through. So we never test for that.
0: Right. We can't. Right. We can. not And that's another flaw within research is that we take tissue out of the body and expect it to behave as it would if it was in the body. Right. Um, Yeah. We're taking it out of its environment. So we can't necessarily assume that. I actually was talking to Anthony Jay um, at at one point and he's he's a researcher at the Mayo Clinic. And he was Mm -hmm. he was saying that uh, um, he was as he was learning, like, you know, we've we've learned that the heart tissue prefers fatty acids and ketones for fuel, like it will preferentially burn. Oh, yeah. And they even told that told us that in medical school. Yeah. yeah, and and uh, and if you look at lots of the studies on cardiac cells, they take them out of of the tissue and they put them in a petri dish full of glucose. You know, that's the Yay. that's the solution that they they study them in. And so, how are we expecting them to to learn anything about normal physiology of a cardiac yeah, yeah. cell if they're putting them in a solution of glucose and they take away their natural fuel source? Anyways, interesting. Um, yep. So, anyways, back to the water. So, not only does water structure itself onto the lining of the artery if the artery is healthy and and it's sufficiently energized it will also um, structure itself around components of blood. Um, and mm. there's studies that show that it, can, it structures itself around red blood cells and lipoproteins. And so that creates this, because of how structured water forms, it's, it's very electronegative. Mm. And then because of the, it cleaves off hydrogens, then the space around it becomes very positive. And so that creates a battery that actually creates blood flow, but that's a different conversation. Um, but what it does is it creates these electrostatic properties where it evenly spaces things. So, you know, people, especially in, in, in medical, so you, you hear about relow formation where the red blood cells get clumped together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's due to inflammation and things like that, that, that damage that process. And that can, that can, um, uh, predispose you to clotting, right. Because things are getting right. stuck together. Whereas if we have this intact, healthy water around these red blood cells, they'll never do that. They can't get that close because of, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a magnet, the electrostatic properties that the fourth phase water creates around it. It's, you can't get them too close. And if you get too close, they kind of repel, you know. So I they see. kind of find this evenly spaced spot and everything's moving through the blood and these evenly spaced things. It's kind of like train cars, mm. you know. And right. so that 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 creates adequate flow. It prevents clotting, which flow is how we prevent clotting in the first place. Um, but it prevents the clumping of the red blood cells and lipoproteins and things like that, and it also keeps them away from the wall. Because not only is there this, this structured water up against the lining of the artery, it's very electronegative. And then the, the, the electronegativity of the cholesterol molecules and uh, the LDL molecules and the um, red blood cells and everything, they, get, they can't get too close to it because it's the same charge. They repel, mm. right? So they just kind of get it's, it's creating this nice slick surface where everything just keeps flowing, right? Yeah. Now, the question is, what happens if that that system, that water system is not in place, right? And what damages that water system? And that is, you know, at the end stage things, atherosclerosis. We get damaged to right. what what damages it? Oxidative stress. So mm-hmm. this very electronegative um um water has a lot of electrons to donate, right? Electrons mm-hmm. are, are the negative. And so if you've got a lot of oxidative stress, you've got a lot of free radicals that are looking for an electron to stabilize themselves, then yes, you're gonna break down this fourth-phase water. If you've got the wrong type of electromagnetic mm-hmm. signaling, um, and in Dr. Pollock's lab, they found that Wi-Fi, a router, decreases fourth phase water formation ten to um, fifteen percent. Yeah, so um, that kind of stuff. And if you've got heavy metals, if you've got uh, advanced oxidation in products from poor blood, blood sugar management, if you've got all kinds of stuff, you know, endotoxemia, different things can yeah. all create this issue where your the fourth phase water can't form. Right. And well, so, it's, yeah.
1: let's say uh, sometimes maybe it's well, I wouldn't say desired, uh-huh. but if it's if it's inherently anticoagulative and you're in a state where coagulation is desired, then like this breakdown is warranted. Like if you have an infection and you want right. to have you know you, to to prevent bleeding and whatever, or you're in a sympathetic state, and we know like sympathetic nervous system promotes clotting because it signals danger.
0: Right. You know then which is is advantageous because if you did get injured because of that danger clotting is ready to prevent you from out. right that's why that's exactly right
1: exactly that's the whole point it's like the the whole the whole whole system that is set in place if you're in danger is it's it's like all these mechanisms are triggered like you you Mm -hmm. experience stress and that that's why even that's why um that's why even though we are not constantly running away from tigers if you experience stress you still experience all the effects that the sympathetic nervous system triggers and also clotting, you know, like the 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 trigger has changed, but the response is still the same. Yeah. And it, it served a very important evolutionary purpose. That that's why it exists. Yeah. Um but now what now nowadays it's you, you can
0: argue, it's arguably it's um sometimes it's more damaging than it's helpful. Right. And so to your point there, I'm glad you said it that way, because that leads me into why. Yeah, you know, that that process of, of clotting and of coagulation and, and all that is supposed to happen in times of damage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In times where there's a threat of bleeding, right? And so if if we're creating that situation, not acutely because of an injury, but, because, but chronically because of our lifestyle, we're creating this constant damage to the first to the fourth phase water, then to the glycocalyx, then to the endothelia, into different layers of the endothelia. Um, and so once all that happens and it gets down to that spot, the damage is so severe, that the body has to do something. If if we're insulin resistant and we can't repair that damage because insulin yeah. signals the repair, then this whole issue um, it develops clotting, right? Which is right. What, a lot of what Malcolm Kendrick talks about. You know, it's clotting tissue because there's damage. It's like if you cut your skin, the damage, that, the way we repair that initially is we develop clotting tissue. And if that clotting tissue is never allowed to fully repair like a, you know we get a scab when we cut our skin and it eventually repairs if that's never allowed to repair because we keep damaging it then eventually it will calcify right the body Absol- will say well yeah, this, is, this is going to stay here we're just going to do this um but it all starts when we break down this fourth phase water that is like the first line of defense against all this stuff from happening it's, it's the first line of defense mm-hmm. against clotting and there are studies that show that grounding putting your feet directly on the earth or using a grounding device Will energize the water in your body and create um, evenly spaced red blood cells. Zeta potential is what they call it around the blood ce- red yeah. blood cells, and prevent clotting. Like there's direct evidence of that. This is so wow. when I say the right environment, when I say it, it's no wonder that we're having issues with clotting and atherosclerosis. It's because people are not putting their feet on the Earth. We've divorced ourselves from contact with the Earth. We're not getting sunlight exposure, which we'll touch on because that was one of the plans. Sunlight is one of the best ways to energize water in the body. So infrared, especially the infrared wavelength is the most absorbed by water. And so if you think about what we're doing as, as a humanity, we go from being inside all night to we get up in the morning, we go sit in our cars and we go to the office under, under artificial light, we're not getting enough sunlight, we're not contacting the Earth. And these are things that evolutionarily played a huge role in our physiology and mm. so if you think about this is this is what i talk about when i'm talking about thinking a different level of thinking when it comes to heart disease if mm. we're not doing these things then of course we're going to end up with heart disease right. right because this is the first line of defense and we've taken that away so now the cardiovascular is on its own yeah and then we're eating you know we're smoking cigarettes and we're drinking and we're eating this bad food and the wrong electromagnetic mm-hmm. environment and all things it's like yeah it's almost become like we started out this conversation saying that at some point in your life you will get heart disease, and if you look at the yeah. environment that we're in and the physiology that that's creating, you're right. Even if we're tr- super healthy or we think we're super healthy, you know, the yeah. average person is going to have some level of heart disease at some point in their life because of this this incorrect environment. And so that that
1: also makes the evolutionary sense that I was was looking for that I can't find in the medical paradigm when they just tell me your body produces a molecule and that causes disease or a, a, a particle, and that causes disease. And I'm thinking, okay, so what does make more sense? You have systems in place that protect you from dying, and if these systems are disrupted, then you develop disease, or you have systems in place that cause uh, disease. So what yeah. what exactly does make more sense? Uh, particularly when when we have, like, when, when it's unambiguous that most of the time the systems or the mechanisms in your body serve a protective purpose. I was even thinking about that in terms um, about insulin. I was thinking in these terms about insulin resistance. I was thinking, why does the body become insulin resistant? Why not just allowing more and more stuff into the cell? Why saying no? Why shutting the door? You know? Why becoming resistant to the signal? And so apparently, the body thinks. The 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 side effect, like the uh, the downside from um, becoming insulin resistant, is less severe than the downside from not becoming insulin resistant. And I don't know what that means, but that's kind of my conclusion. Well, and it's so almost same the same thing, as like
0: it's the body determines that it's it's the downside from um, letting cancer not happen is more that's right. terrible than happening than cancer happening in the short term. Right? Whatever that means,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean it's less it's less controversial when we talk about infections and we say mm. the downside of getting a fever is 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 protective in the short term you know if I, if if you were running a fever like for a month then maybe that'll be difficult to handle for the body but in the short term it's more protective than it's damaging mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll I'll take it mm-hmm. and so if we apply the same thing to heart disease then the mechanisms that I have to um use right now to protect myself in the moment might be damaging in 50 years. But right now, this is what I have to do because the the structured water is absent and suddenly I have damage happening to the cells and I can't just like bleed to death. You know, I have to repair Mm. this damage. And also I can't, if I form the clot, if you have it on your skin, it can just fall off. So imagine a clot Mm. constantly falls off in your blood, in in your vessel. What happens if it falls off? It, it travels somewhere else, and then yeah, it there's, gets there's stuck. not enough
0: enzymes to break it down. It's an issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it so it has to be covered. That's what Malcolm Kendrick talks about. It has, it, it, it gets covered and incorporated into the wall, mm-hmm. and that's where you get plaque development. So th- that's why this just makes makes more sense to me when I when I look at this the way the way you describe it compared to how it's being commonly taught um, taught in medical school. Um, and so um, we actually touched on the most important things. I, I had one more question for you. Um, so we critics like asking if LDL is causative, why don't we see it happening in veins? Mm. Have you ever asked this question to cardiologists and like people who are experts experts in the field? And if you did, what, what were their response?
0: Um, well, lots of them say pressure, which... I agree with, um, okay. it, it, as, a, as, a, as a fundamental thing, pressure, yeah. Um, but I don't agree with their their mechanisms. They don't, they think that there's more pressure pushing the LDL up against the wall, and that's just, it, it's just oh it's it's ending up in it. That's their thing. Whereas me, pressure is uh, because it's pushing that oxidative stress, those free radicals, up against. So if there's it is inflammation, and we see. Not only do we not see atherosclerosis in veins where there's less pressure, we also see it in arteries of higher pressure, or in places in arteries where there's higher pressure, like when the when the artery splits, or right. um, or where the coronary arteries, which are under the most pressure, and the left anterior descending artery is under the most pressure of any artery in the mm. body, um, to my knowledge, which is why almost 100% of heart attacks happen um there um not all of them but a lot of them happen in that artery because there's lots of pressure so when you have this pressure and you have this inflammation and oxidative stress you have this pro clotting environment that's just where it happens right and so the coronary arteries are notorious for developing atherosclerosis because of that and places where there's bifurcation or there's a turn you know um i ask uh philip a cardiac surgeon um where they see uh, most often, they see clots form for heart attacks, and they say it's always an area where there's a bend in the artery, right? Because that's where yeah. it's bending around and it's coming up against that side, and it's creating it's creating sheer stress. It's it's there's, um, it's creating um, stagnant flow because it, it's more likely to right. kind of cool up a little bit, and so that's where clots form if we're not doing the right things. Um, if you know we're not putting our body in that right environment. So, um, so yeah, it, it the answer is pressure, um, but also <clears throat> um, um, but also uh, not, but not because of pressure, because cholesterol is coming up, but pressure because of oxidative stress and inflammation being pushed up against the lining of the wall, causing more damage.
1: Right. So, um, oh yeah, that that all makes sense. Um. So, uh, to to maybe to maybe sum up everything we we talked about and become a little bit practical in the last minute. Um. The the un untraditional, let's say less common things that you less commonly hear from other people uh, or advices you less commonly hear from other people um, as far as heart disease prevention is concerned um, what we added today is the importance of getting outside into the sun the attempt uh, making an attempt to avoid excessive emf and i phrase it this way because like you just can't avoid it like the fact that you exist in a city is we right. are surrounded by it all the time. So I'm not sure if you even can avoid it. So maybe that's like one risk factor that you just have to accept. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you're when when you when you a passive smoker. There's not much you can do. You can avoid things here and there, but you will, you know, inhale mm-hmm. particles that are damaging, you know. Just have to try best to minimize all the other risk factors. Right. right? And then um, rounding. And I like that. And I'm a big fan of walking barefoot. And I think mm-hmm. it's underrated. And it's just, I mean just for people who've never tried it just try it and you'll never <laughs> wear shoes again so i mean it's just it's just it even it just feels good it's the 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 thing you mentioned in the beginning certain things just just feel right and you want to do more of it like getting into the sun people people most people love the sun right there's some and and then your cortex tells you oh no it's bad it causes cancer and blah 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 and then you avoid it but i think most people have a natural proclivity to get outside into the sun and spend the time there
0: yeah well i I mean just what's the first thing you do when you go to the beach you get get out in the sun you take your shoes off right Right. that's what you do because that feels good and it's it's not it's not our fault that we've put all this gravel and concrete out there to make it uncomfortable to go barefoot a lot of places yeah you know it's as soon as we get to an environment where it is comfortable we do it so it, it, it makes sense that's what's real that's that's
1: right there it is so um thank you very much for being so generous with your time. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. We could go on for longer, and we'll we'll probably do another part in the future, and talk about maybe maybe new things will come up, or you write another book. So who knows? So let's. <laughs> oh, okay. What did, what are you working on? So two things. What are you working on? And where can people find you, your work, and your books, and your page, and everything?
0: Yeah. Um, my books and um is on Amazon. It's also on my website, which is resourceyourhealth.com um i'm on instagram and and facebook and twitter um the handle is just dr Stephen hussey dr Stephen hussey so people can reach out to me there um yep. i um i'll be speaking at a few more events this year in baltimore um one in norway one in hawaii so oh, wow. um uh, check those out and then um or i'll be you know posting about those and then uh yeah I, i'm i'm you know, getting ready to sit down and start writing. I've done all the research and everything uh, for the next book. And it's going to be, um, I think, centered around pain, um, but more focused on the actual actual physiology from a, right. from a more of a biophysics perspective and how the body actually functions and communicates and creates flow and those types of things. Because when those things go wrong, we don't get You know we don't get proper physiology and i'm just going to relate it all to pain but really it's all disease you know but um but yeah um that's that's in the works um who knows how long it'll take but i'm about to start writing so yeah well
1: again thank you very much i'll put all the information all the links in in the description we'll let you know when the episode comes out and um well enjoy the rest of the day
0: yeah you as well thanks for having me thank you Okay. All right. Cool. There that we go, good, man.